There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the Dwight. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Power Court Hour podcast. Hope you're doing well out there and thank you so much for checking out yet another episode. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Merchant, here with you. And, uh, you know, this is our first episode of September. Thank you very much. I'm doing this in the WFA studios right now in downtown Jamestown. And uh, it's hard to believe that, like, it was just a few weeks ago, I feel like, that if I was in the studio right now, it would still, you know, I could still see daylight. But we have some uh, really nice big windows here in the studio looking uh, down onto downtown Jamestown. And uh, it already looks like night. I mean, I guess it is nighttime now. Like, you know, it, I, I hate that. Like, I love the fall, but the thing that I, the one thing that I don't like about it is how it starts just getting dark so early. Like, I feel like it just kind of came out of nowhere. But, uh, you know, it definitely, it feels like and it looks like fall right now. But this is our first episode of September, and I am coming to you this week solo. We will probably have a guest next week, but uh, all good. We we are here to uh, talk music as always, but this time it is just me. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about this week. And, you know, probably probably some of our most popular episodes of the podcast, and honestly, some of my favorite interviews to do, are, uh, you know, kind of album, album anniversary interviews, you know, kind of talking to uh, bands who maybe aren't even releasing anything new at the moment, but, you know, released a landmark album, you know, X amount of years ago. And this is a, a you know, like landmark anniversary for them. And, uh, you know, sadly this year, you know, with coronavirus, people aren't going out and playing shows. You know, I mean, the last it hasn't always been that way, even though it probably feels like it's been forever. But I mean, the last decade Obviously, the big thing for anniversaries of albums is going out and playing, you know, the album front to back. It really wasn't a thing, I would say, until like Jimmy Eat World. I feel like they always get brought up in the show. But uh, I mean, they're really like the first band. I mean, maybe there were there, there could have been others before that. Like I know people have played their albums front to back live before. But that that idea of doing like an album anniversary show. I mean, Jimmy Eat World had to have really kind of opened the floodgates to that back in 2009 with the Clarity 10-year tour. But, you know, like this last decade, I mean, if you had a record come out in like, you know, the early 2000s or even like the 90s or whatever, you know, it's like you would you would hit like that 10-year mark or that 15-year mark and they just start, you know, album anniversary tour. Like you're basically – it's funny because once again, I mean, Corona's kind of slowed it down. And uh, but, you know, for a while there, I would say that if if your favorite record was celebrating, you know, like I said, it's 10th anniversary or it's like 15th anniversary, you could basically bet on it that you were going to get a tour and uh, that record was going to get repressed on vinyl. Um, that, that was like a given, just an absolute given. Like it, that, that's just what it was there for a while. And like, you know, the punk and alternative scene. And, uh, you know, I like I always like that, though. You know, some people aren't into that and I like the whole celebration of it you know people even artists sometimes have and and I get it too like that they don't want to be too nostalgic or indulge too much in a certain thing and uh and I also think you know for artists sometimes too you know there's records including you know early on say like your debut record where like you know you've grown so much since then but that but that may still be like your biggest record or it may be what your fan you know like the fan favorite and it's like 
you know, it's it's it may be an inner struggle, not even an inner struggle. I don't want to make it sound too dramatic, but you know, kind of this conflict where you as an artist have moved on from that sound or that record and your audience still very much wants that out of you and you may not want to, you know what I mean? Like you don't you don't want to indulge in that so much because it's been a conflict most of your career to get out of the, you know, the overshadowing of that like one, you know, like that one record that really made you explode. So, I mean, there's artists and stuff who I know don't get into the anniversary thing. And uh, there's some fans who don't who, you know, look at look at it as a cash grab and whatnot. But uh, I'm always into the anniversary thing, whether it be anniversary shows, or, like the reissues and stuff. And I love doing the interviews here, you know, I'm um, talking about the records. But, uh, you know, not only do I love doing that, but I mean, if you listen to the show, you probably know that like probably my favorite decade of music would be the 90s. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I cover on here, a lot of those album anniversaries I was talking about, you know, a lot of that comes from the 90s. Even even I mean, bands who I interview on here for new stuff, a lot of them were established then. Like that was just an era that, you know, speaks to me for whatever reason. You know, I mean, I love music of all eras and whatnot, but. I would say most of my favorite bands started in the 90s. And, uh, you know, I, I also think it may not hurt that my favorite band is The Replacements. And, uh, you know, I mean, basically the alternative genre in the 1990s was all bands just trying to, uh, you know, out-Westerberg one another. You know, Paul Paul and company kind of made that, uh, you know, the map or whatever, wrote the map in the 80s. And, you know, after breaking up in 91, I feel like that, you know, most bands took that roadmap. And, uh, you know, and I, and I think that may, I, you know, which I guess it depends if you like 90s music or not. You could either thank or blame Paul Westerberg for that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's a terrible thing to say that he may he may play a role in why I love 90s music so much. But uh, you know, one of the one of the years I was thinking about was 1995. I mean, that's 25 years ago, which is uh, you know, I mean, just absolutely crazy to think about. But uh, on top of that, I mean, I was thinking about that, and I think part of it too, I noticed a lot of records, like my favorite records from a lot of my favorite bands, came out in that year, and uh, you know, just a great, a really great year for music. Enough where you know, I want to I want to dedicate the podcast to it. And uh, it was funny because I was thinking about it and I'm like, why, you know, why that year? Like, I wonder why it's so good or why it seems like it was so good and why there were so many good records that came out. And, uh, you know, I just finally got to it. I've been meaning to, uh, I didn't read it, but I listened to the audiobook and I cannot recommend it enough, actually. But uh, ever since it came out back in 2016, No Effects is the uh, Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. I've uh, meaning to been meaning to read it, and uh, just recently I read the audiobook or listened to the audiobook. Amazing! All the parts were read by No Effects with uh, with the uh, the former, you know, all four like the you know solid like what we all know the No Effects lineup, but like some of the dudes from like the earlier incarnations of No Effects and like the earlier lineups. Um, do not do their parts. Instead, they're narrated by Tommy Chung and Jello Biafra. So, uh, yeah, if you want to hear the No Effects audiobook narrated by No Effects and Jello Biafra and Tommy Chung, which who wouldn't want to hear that? Um, I highly recommend it. I will say the book is a lot darker than I thought it would be. I mean, it has a lot of funny parts, but uh, tons and tons of dark parts. Kind of like Trouble Boys in that way. The uh, the replacements, which is my favorite music bio of all time. Bob Mayer absolutely killed it. But uh, that's another one where 
you read it, and I mean, yes, the antics of the replacements are in there. There's hilarious parts, but I mean, there's also just, you know, like the stuff with Bob and, uh, you know, just a lot of other stuff in there, just extremely sad, you know, and and it has some dark parts. And it's the same thing with the hepatitis bathtub. But, uh, you know, listening to it, they got to that era of, you know, basically the mid-90s. And uh, it wasn't even specifically 95, but, I mean, just kind of talking about the punk explosion and Nirvana and uh, what that really did for no effects and fat records and, I mean, just punk bands in general. And, I mean, you know, everyone kind of knows 1994 is the year that uh, punk broke. And, I mean, they were talking about that in uh, – Fat Mike specifically was talking about it and just, you know, what that would do for the band and for the record label as well as Epitaph and the rest of them. And, you know, 1991 you had Nevermind and, you know, the grunge explosion. Then a couple years later, you know, in 94 you had, you know, Dookie and uh, Smash – and all these huge punk rock records come out and just sell ungodly amounts of copies. And for the first time, you know, punk being a commercial success, you know, like charting, you know, on Billboard and whatnot, and really an amazing thing. So when you start to think about that and reading the book and thinking about, you know, how that would inspire people, because, uh, you know, like the other thing too, what they said, and I think it was Smelly who uh, said it in there, was like, you know, Dookie was a good example of that, where he's like, you know, after a while when it started selling really well, it was easy to write Green Day off, and, you know, they weren't the cool band, and they were the sellout band and stuff, but he's like, you know, make no mistake, before that happened, like, we were all listening to that and thinking of how amazing it was and how good it was, and, you know, I mean, I I think that's the thing, like, part of it is, like, what came out during that time, you know, not only exploded in 94, but a lot of it was just such high quality, you know, I mean, Dookie, in my opinion, Green Day's best record and most people a lot of people agree with that what I will say for Green Day though and this is an amazing thing because most bands have like that one record that that everyone basically for the most part agrees is their best record you know like you may you may find diehards and stuff who who will pick like an obscure record as their favorite but you know most people like for the descendants like the descendants most people would probably say Milo goes to college like you know there's there's a lot of bands where you know, it's it's that record. But like with Green Day, they're so lucky because I would say they had, you know, Dookie and then they have American Idiot later on. And, you know, I mean, other people have, you know, people have favorites in between, but it's like to have two records the size of, you know, and to have the cultural impact and to sell the amounts of copies that both Dookie and American Idiot did is something that you rarely do twice in your career, let alone once, which is amazing. But, uh, you know, Green Day putting out such a great record in 94, same with uh, The Offspring, as well as, you know, that also, the money that that gave Epitaph and, uh, you know, putting money behind that and being able to put money behind your bands. And really, too, you know, because of that punk explosion, if you look at what was coming out in 94 as well as 95, and, you know, more specifically 95 we're going to get into here, But if you look at it, these are not, like, super polished records. These are not, like, super poppy. Like, they really – it's funny because, like, you know, like in 95, punk bands and alternative bands were still going – you know, signing to major labels. And once again, as we're speaking about, this is a time when it did sell, you know, that that labels did want, you know, the next – Whatever that was, you know, they wanted the next Rancid, they wanted the next Green Day, you know, and and before that they wanted the next Nirvana. And it kind of, you know, I think from that, because that's the other thing, I don't think, I don't think punk would have hit in 94 the way it did had grunge not hit a few years prior. Like had Nevermind not been released and gotten as big as it was 
Um, you know, I mean, for one, the grunge movement and the whole grunge scene would have never blown up probably. And uh, at least to the at least to the volume it did. I mean, a lot of great bands, other bands came out of that and a lot of great records. But I don't know that it ever would have gotten to the size it did. And, you know, with that, you know, it kind of really did trailblaze for punk later on, uh, you know, just a few years later. But you weren't really like, you know, major labels were putting money into these raw, you know, like real bands and like honestly didn't really take, you know, that raw energy out of a lot of them, you know, like they were putting things out where these bands were just putting out better music than their records before, but they weren't particularly like changing their sound up or anything like that. Like a great, like a really good one. And, you know, one that, that we've talked extensively on here because uh, we had the drummer Greg Eklund on earlier in the year, but Everclear Sparkle and Fade. I mean, that's a, I mean, a, a favorite of mine, just no matter what we're talking about, just a favorite record of mine. But like, if you listen to that, you go, that was on Capitol Records and it's not a polished album at all. It it sounds like a continuation of their first record, World of Noise. Like, it's a little cleaner than that, but I mean, not by much. And like, really, it just sounds like a stronger set of songs. Like, it doesn't sound like a different band. It just sounds like a band that went and wrote an even better record, you know, that happened to have some, you know, huge, huge hits on it. But, uh, you know, talking to Greg Eklund and, you know, doing that interview, like he said, they were just kind of a a trio, you know, just three guys who just wanted to be in a really good rock band. Like, they were raw. You know, they were just writing these songs. There weren't ghostwriters. There weren't co-writers. You know, they were producing the stuff themselves. It was basically three guys in a studio just doing it. And, uh, you know, I also asked, like, you know, with, like, what kind of – things you know the major labels did because it is a thing back then you know or or still even you know where kind of the stereotype is like you know you get you get grabbed by the major labels and they're going to polish your sound and they're going to take all the stuff that made you good out and listen that does happen like I you know it'd be crazy to deny that that doesn't happen but you know I I think one of the things that major labels really got right was I think there was a time there 1995 where they weren't doing that, you know, they weren't doing that yet with these bands. They were letting them sound like that because same with Nevermind. Nevermind, you know, sonically doesn't sound bad. Like it doesn't sound rough in the sense that it, you know, like it sounds like a shitty, you know, like demo cassette that someone recorded in their garage. Like it's obviously, you know, because if you listen to something like that, it's going to sound like it was recorded in there. Whereas Nevermind doesn't sound like that. It sounds like it was recorded in a good studio, but it's still very loud, raw guitars and raw drums and bass. And, you know, there's not a lot of overdubs in there. There's not a bunch of crazy things. And, uh, you know, once again, the success of that, I think also, you know, allowed that where maybe those labels would go, well, you know, let's let a band like Everclear, like, hey, we did sign them because they sounded like this, like maybe we shouldn't mess around with that sound too much. And that's what Greg said is they really, they didn't really do it. He had a funny story about them adding a a chorus to Santa Monica, but it's like there really wasn't a lot of like, oh, we should change the key to this or like maybe if you, you know, raise the tempo on this or lower it on this, you know, we need it closer to like 120 BPM. That's like what a lot of like pop music is in and like that tempo and stuff like, like they didn't do calculated stuff like that for a lot of these records. And it's why that year, you know, really did produce such good stuff. You know, I mean, 
had they went in on a sparkle and fade and kind of treated it like, you know, some of those later Everclear records where, you know, they are kind of more polished and there are more layers and there it is more of a, you know, kind of like studio project where it's like, you know, those songs may have started on an acoustic guitar, maybe just three guys jamming, but it's like there was a lot of things added when, you know, when going into studio and, uh, you know, during that time, you just didn't hear it. You know, it was it was kind of more innocent with uh, records like that. You know, that could be out on a major label. You know, there's uh, you know another one like that, like Insomniac. You know, I mean, like we we're speaking about Green Day, and it's crazy to think about because 1994 was the year that Dookie came out, and I mean, just exploded for Green Day. And you know, you think of how long those singles like were out there, and uh, you know, I'm sure they were still releasing them in 1995 like i mean they were still putting out singles for dookie and it's insane to think that green day put out insomniac like like just a year later like you know once again dookie is such a career defining record and you already put the follow-up out you know a year later you know which the other funny thing about that you know if you you know i'm not making the whole episode about green day but i mean if you look at american idiot you know the follow-up for that for 21st century breakdown that was like there was some time in between there. I think it was like four or five years in between records for that one. So it's so funny how, you know, Green Day, the first time they had a huge, massive record, they followed it up right away. And then the second time it happened, they took like half a decade, you know, for the follow up. And, uh, you know, Insomniac, I don't think it's better than Dookie. But the thing is, is I don't think they were going to put out a record. Listen, like when you put out an album like that, and once again, Amazing that they did it a second time with American Idiot, but it's crazy. It it would just it would be next to impossible and crazy to hit the strides that they did with Dookie on Insomniac. Like and also with the sound, you know, they obviously they all admit it and uh you know it was it was like they wanted to be raw and punk still on that record, you know, because Dookie was getting so big, or not even getting, it was big, you know, they were massive at that point. Um, you know, they kind of wanted as a response to do something a little darker than Dookie and more punk and a little heavier at times. And, uh, you know, like as far as, as, as someone who's just a fan of, you know, punk music or whatever, I love it. Like I think Insomniac is great from a commercial standpoint though. Um, I could, I could see why it wouldn't be as big as Dookie, but once again, I don't think anything could be because even if they went in and tried to rewrite like When I Come Around or Basket Case, I don't think they could. Part of the magic about Dookie is that those songs aren't, you know, polished and like, you know, have like six people who co-wrote it. You know, it's not. It's like it's they're just simple three chord songs that are very catchy, you know. And I mean, there's there's three chord songs that are very catchy on Insomniac. But, uh, you know, they also go different places and do different things and a little more rough around the edges. But once again, when you listen to that, like how rad is that that Green Day was such a massive band and you listen, you know, you listen to Insomniac and it's like that's a major label band with, you know, millions of dollars behind them. You know, they they I'm sure had a huge budget for recording it and, uh, you know, something you don't see every day, something that wouldn't have been it just would not have happened even when Green Day started in like 88, like if you look back at like the, the year 1988, punk bands weren't getting on major labels. That wasn't a thing like that. That's crazy to think about. But here they were. And once again, without really an uncompromised sound, I would say, I mean, 
I'm sure the labels gave them shit and wanted, and don't get me wrong, there were singles on there, but it, you know, when you look, it pales in comparison to the sales and, you know, the, the amount of airplay that the songs on Insomniac got compared to Dookie. Still one of the best Green Day records, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, I mean, for a major label to release something like that, one, and it's kind of, it really kind of was a sliver in time because wouldn't it have, wouldn't it have done it, you know, 10 years prior? And I don't think they would have did it 10 years later. Because by the time Green Day got to American Idiot, you know, we're obviously a much more polished sound and, you know, a lot more uh, mainstream. You know, I, I would say something like, you know, Boulevard of Broken Dreams or Holiday or American Idiot, you know, the title track, you know, most of the stuff on there is a lot more radio friendly and mainstream friendly than uh, what you'll find like on Insomniac. And it, and it really, it's kind of interesting, but it is this kind of sliver in time. Another reason why 1995 was just such a great year, I think, for music, because yes, a lot of the great bands were on major labels at this time. This was a time where you wanted to be on a major label, but I don't feel like labels were messing around with the sound. Were they fucking the bands in other ways? I'm sure. I'm sure there were money, like, you know, they were still screwing bands over with money and, you know, royalties and things like that. But as far as the music went, I don't feel like they were doing that too much, you know, because you also look at that later on and, like, if you look at, like, Blink-182 might be around that that era, I would say, like, you know, 1999 and, like, with Enema of the State where – you you at that point, and, it, and it's not that major labels, I think, were controlling Blink-182 or anything like that. I love Enema of the State. I think a lot of it was their own conscious effort and also working with Jerry Finn to make a more mainstream-friendly sound and record. But with that said, you know, as that was getting popular, that's a different sound than, say, you know, the rawness of Insomniac. And, you know, it kind of shifts from there where, I think major labels were starting to polish bands more and did want them to sound cleaner and more radio friendly. You know, I think there was a time though in the nineties where that kind of stuff worked. I mean, another, another one, a huge, a huge thing like, like in music and uh, you know, including the stuff I play like on the radio show and just everything this show's about like 120 minutes is such an important like program and uh, I mean, I mean, shout out to Matt Pinfield, one of one of I mean, like a hero of mine. But uh, you know that he started his uh, his debut on 120 Minutes was in 1995. So that was 25 years ago. He started being the host of 120 Minutes. And I mean, you look back at like those performances, the music videos they played. You know, I mean, the, even like guest hosts they'd have on his interviews, like everyone who he'd have on. So amazing. And like to have, you know, at that time, MTV being what it was, you know, truly being able to give exposure to bands and truly mean something. You know, that was a time where if you were on MTV, that would do something for your career. And, you know, look at you. There wasn't room for, say, Archers of Loaf or Hum on, you know, like a lot of the other mainstream programs on MTV. But with 120 minutes, that was the outlet on still such a large platform and, you know, got that music out to people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. You know, like everyone MTV so big and you get MTV anywhere in the country. And that was still at a time where if you, you know, now the great equalizer is the Internet. You know, I mean, if you live in the middle of Iowa you have access, you know, on the internet to the same, to all the same music as someone who lives in, say, Portland. You know, I mean, it's the same access. If you have the internet, it's all there for you. Whereas at that time, you had to have a record store that you could go to. 
And then, you know, if that record store didn't carry the thing you were looking for, you'd have to get special ordered. You know, it was it was a time where you had to hunt things down more and, uh, you know, things like that. So MTV was a thing where, you know what, if you lived in, say, rural Iowa, you may not have the cool record store where you can go in and ask, like, you know, the the uh, you know, the, the guy working behind the counter like, Hey, you know, like, what are the cool bands right now? Like, who are the cool alternative bands? Like, you don't have that. Or not a record store, you walk in and we're playing, like, Super Chunk or something, and, like, that's how you heard them. You know, like, you didn't have that everywhere. So 120 minutes, though, because, once again, you have MTV in those places where you want to have the cool record store. So 120 minutes is a place where people could hear these bands, you know, and did expose them to that. So, I mean, Matt Pinfield, even to this day, just, you know, a guy who exposes people to, uh, you know, music that they otherwise probably wouldn't hear and does it at a mainstream level too, which I always think is cool. But, uh, and one of the things I love too about him is, uh, there's, and he's probably interviewed him other times, but his first time interviewing Paul Westerberg in what had to be 95 or 96, had to be his first or second year doing 120 minutes, but his interview with Paul Westerberg it's nothing groundbreaking. I mean, he doesn't ask any like, you know, like it's not like this like earth shattering interview where like there's all these revelations or like he gets Paul Westerberg to open up a lot. But what I like about it is that you can tell there's a nervousness there and there's a respect. Like you can tell that he's legitimately a fan and that, you know, he gives a shit and that he's intimidated. He knows who this is. He knows it's Paul Westerberg. He knows the reputation. He knows the lyrical genius that he's dealing with. Like, you know, it, it's something that I look at that and I go, that guy gives a shit. He gave a shit. He, you know, there's a reason he was the host of 120 Minutes. And, uh, you know, just a huge impact once again on not just the year 1995. I mean, the 90s in general. And, uh, you know, once again, to this day, still doing it, which I think is amazing and, you know, really cool. Big ups to him. But, uh, you know, 120 minutes being something where, you know, I feel like major labels could let those kind of otter bands out there who, you know, have a sound that isn't that you wouldn't think is radio friendly. And maybe it's not for, say, top 40, but you had something like 120 minutes where they could get on there and that could move units. You know, it may not it may not be you know, on the top 40 countdown, it may not be on TRL, you know, which I know TRL is a you know a couple years later, but if it's not on there, it could be on 120 minutes. And, you know, that, that really gave it something. And really like one band who ended up getting like radio airplay, getting their music videos on MTV. And another great example of that, where it's just like looking at what, you know, really was given a chance back in the nineties. And this one, not even from a major label. I mean, on Epitaph, which, you know, their second success, you know, they had the offspring selling, you know, like 11 million copies of Smash. And then in 1995, Rancid comes out and kind of continues that punk explosion of 1994. You know, I mean, really, because there are a lot of punk bands who put out some great records in 95. But if we're talking like big numbers and out come the wolves, I mean, still punk rock classic to this day. I mean, it has not does not sound like it's 25 years old. It, it, it's ageless. But, you know. That record sold ungodly amounts too. And it's like, that's a straight up punk rock record. That's not even like, like, that's not even pop punk. You know what I mean? Like, even Green Day on Insomniac is like more pop punk. Whereas Rancid, like, no, like that, for one, all those guys look like they're, they're going to fucking rob you and kick your ass. Like, you know, they, they all look like that. Like Tim and Lars both look like, you know, they're the, they're like the front men, but it's like, yeah, they look, they look like they would kick your ass in an alleyway and steal your wallet, you know? And it's like, 
that that record is is raw. It's you know, I mean, there's bass solos all over it. You know, it's if you really look at and outcome the wolves, it's also and it's like 19 or 20 tracks. It's you know, I mean, it's rough around the edges. There's a lot of cursing on it. And just all these different things where, like, you would not you would not think that it was going to be that huge, big, successful album. But then again, none of these were. I think that's the other charm of it is I don't know that anyone ever thought that, you know, the Offspring Smash was going to be that or, you know, or that Nevermind was going to be the record that it was. You know, that's part of the charm. I think you went in. And that's the other thing that, uh, you know, major labels and just bands in general, you know, not even always major labels. They're just labels who make bands get that more polished sound. But, um, you know, I, I think with that, it, it really kind of fucks things over where I think you're just better off, you know, kind of keeping keeping that like, you know, rawness and what makes what makes a band, you know, really good. You know, to fuck with that is just I don't I don't think it's normally in the best interest, you know, of anybody. And I think I think if you listen to a record like an Outcome the Wolves, you know, once again, it's like there's not really. You wouldn't think there's a formula formula there for it to be something huge. Like it really has, it has no business getting you know the the attention that it that it did per se. You know, outside of like really the people who you know loved Fat Records and Epitaph. You know, and there were a lot of people who did. But once again, even even with that said, as big as Fat and Epitaph were in the '90s. It's not like every record they put out were going gold and platinum. You know, like Fat Records has one or two gold records. I don't think they have any platinum records. And, uh, you know, I mean, Epitaph, sure. I mean, they had they have a handful of records, you know, which still, I mean, to this day, I think Smash is still considered like the the highest selling independent record of all time. You know, I mean, they, they had some massive ones. But, uh, you know, it's not like everything they're releasing was selling millions and millions of records. You know, that that just wasn't the case. But for whatever reason, you know, on that one, it just it it seemed to break, you know. But I, I think that I think with that, though, too, you know, the bands, you know, like we're talking about some of these ones that like sold amazing, amazing, you know, amounts of copies. But there's also other ones where, once again, like Fat Records was putting out ones where maybe they weren't selling millions of records. But, I mean, Legwagon put out Haas, you know, No, no Use for a Name put out Leche Con Carne. Um, even though it didn't come out that year, Fat Records re-released uh, Face to Faces Don't Turn Away in uh, 1995. You know, like a lot of really important records, which, once again, you know, it, it, they're not like, you know. They're not selling like uh, and outcome the wolves did, you know, by by any means necessary. But those records are huge, you know. Like, I mean, if you're if you're a fan of those labels, you're a fan of of the genre. It's like those are huge fucking records, you know. And uh, all of that kind of came out in 1995. Like that was a even even records that weren't maybe even like commercially once again huge sellers, or even even to that point maybe not even the band's biggest records. But uh, you know, a lot of bands put out like. Their most, their landmark records, you know, like, like I was talking about, like with Dookie and, you know, like those records that kind of define you that that become basically what you're playing, you know, those anniversary shows. It's like that's the record that we're going to, you know, in 20 years, we're going to, you know, do the anniversary tour and we're going to, you know, put out some vinyl, you know, that like that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, Fat Records just did that and uh, Epitaph as well. Just a lot of them where, you know, hey. We're not going to sell a million copies of these, but it's like they will they will be remembered, you know. And that, that was another part of the uh, the kind of going back to the hepatitis bathtub that, uh, you know, they talked about a couple times where it's like, you know, you can 
there's certain things you could do in music where, you know, maybe maybe you can get a step up or a step ahead, you know, doing this or that. But it's like it ends up, you know, you end up getting screwed in the end because what you really want is longevity. It's it's not the gimmicks of what will make you popular in the, you know, in that second. It's it's more of the longevity and what will make it good, you know, and, and that's kind of sincerity. And, uh, you know, Fat Mike also talking about, you know, starting Fat Records and really – only wanting to release what he likes, you know, not releasing something because you know it's going to sell millions of copies, releasing it because you know it's good. And, you know, I for one, that gives you a better track record. And, you know, not, not to talk shit on Epitaph Records, but, you know, they're business-wise, they are smarter and probably do have more gold and platinum records than Fat Records does. But if you look throughout time, I think Epitaph probably started more like that where, you know, Brett would sign bands that he liked and, you know, after a while, it does become a business. And, you know, not to say that he, like, dislikes everything that he signs, but there is there, it did become more eclectic where I would say at some point the signings on Epitaph are no longer just because Brett likes that band, but more of, well, you know, is it is it going to sell? You know, is this something that we can move units on? You know, and I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's that's honestly the purpose of a major label. But uh, I will say that's probably the reason why I think if you look at Epitaph in, like, say, 1995, you know, another great one, like Pennywise, About Time, um, you know, Epitaph having bands like that. And even in 95, actually, I think No Effects still being, um, funny enough, on Epitaph. I, I think at that point they still would have been on there. But um, actually, no, they would have just left because while they didn't release a full length in 95, they did release, which, I mean, has become kind of a classic live record. But uh, I heard they suck live. That one did come out in '95, and that was on Fat Records. But that might have been like one of their, like I don't know, one of the, one of the first releases they put out on uh, uh, at least No Effects on Fat. Obviously, there are other bands before that, but uh, yeah, you know, still still kind of early on there. But anyways, you know, that's that's another reason why I think there's so many classics that you look from that year and you're like, oh my god, like that came out and that came out and that came out because it's like, you know, it, it's not that Fat was choosing bands because hey, this is going to sell a bunch. They were choosing bands that they knew were good and were going to put something good out. And, you know, once again, what you get out of that ends up being like some of the some of the best records of those bands career. You know, I mean, Haas Haas is that's my second favorite Lagwagon record, but that's a lot of people's favorite. Um, Let's talk about feelings is easily my favorite Lagwagon record, but Haas would be easily second. I mean, Leche Con Carne. My favorite No Use for a Name record, and uh, that one probably gave them commercially too, because that one has Soulmate on it. That was probably their biggest record, and uh, you know both both came out in 1995. And you know once again, it, that that that's kind of where that explosion kind of came from too. The 90s skate punk is kind of I would say starts around 95 because bands are releasing records like that, and then spent the rest of the 90s, you know, like the second half of the 90s, releasing more classics, you know, like like the Strung Outs, like the Lag Wagons, like the Face to Faces, like the Pennywises. Like I feel like they all really shined on the second half of the 90s. You know, if you really look at that and you look at it as a whole, it's not it's not that you know like punk rock was shining from 1990 to 1999 the entire time i would say like 93 to 94 to like 99 was like really the sweet spot there you know all together i mean that 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 was really the time and i i think once again records like an outcome the wolves you know really i think also probably gave inspiration because it's not even it's not even that every punk band had to listen to that and go 
oh, well, you know, we're going to write a record to sell, you know, all these record, you know, sell all these copies of our album. But instead, what it could be is, is even though you may not be aiming to be this huge, huge band, you can at least look and go, oh, well, this is doable. Like, you, you know, you still see these bands get huge and go, well, there's at least somewhere in the middle for us or something like that, you know, because there are there are genres, once again, like punk, where, you know, maybe maybe 10, 15 years prior to that, which, you know, yeah, if you go back to 1980, say, you know, it really it may be harder, you know, to sustain your band and people may not be coming out as much. And, it you know, it, it's harder to really get started where once that explosion hits, you know, once again, you may not be the next rancid, but people are paying attention to this genre and you may be able to get, you know, two or three hundred kids to come out and, you know, buy tickets to your shows and buy T-shirts and a seven inch. And, you know, once again, you're not you're not a millionaire, but you're making a living, you know, doing your music, which, you know, is a, is a great thing. So, I mean, you know, 1995, I think, was a pretty important year, you know, for uh, Epitaph and Fat. Because once again, I mean, you had, the, you had the explosion in 94, but I think where you would really feel it is the following year. You know, once things really start getting released in the wake of that, you know, 94 was the time for it to really start going. And, you know, the, the kind of the domino effect, if you will, is kind of what you saw in 1995 with that, you know, and, and major labels also, you know, basically picking up anything that Epitaph or Fat didn't. And, you know, I mean, the flip side, too, like, like I was saying, I mean, you know, there there were a lot of things that I think for as much shit as major labels get, you know, there there were a lot who kind of let bands have that freedom and, you know, did sign them and realize it's like, hey, we signed them for a reason. We should let them, you know, kind of continue doing what they're doing. You know, don't fix it if it's not broken. But, uh, you know, I mean, some some bands around the major labels, though, you know, I mean, for every for every band who, you know, once again, like like on the smaller ones who are selling, you know, Rancid may sell three million. But just because you're on Epitaph, not everyone's selling three million. And same with the major labels, you know, not every punk band who, you know, got signed to a major actually really at the end of the day, probably more of a majority never really made it. You know, you're kind of throwing them throwing them to the wall and see what sticks and, uh, you know, it's not to say that not a lot of great records didn't come out, but I mean, you know, commercially, you know, like one, uh, you know, to kind of going some of my favorite records of all time, you know, Jawbreaker put out Dear You in 1995 and uh, one of my favorite albums of all time from any band. But that's a good example of that. I mean, you know, signing to a major label and for one at a time where, you know, you, you get you get sellout thrown at you and uh, people just being pissed off. And then not even giving the record the time of day. And, you know, it's funny to look back now because at the time, you know, the record, not that Dear You sounds very polished, but it was an expensive record to make. And at the time, you know, there were things on it where you're like, oh, like there is some production. But, uh, you know, like like now it would probably cost like nothing to make. Then it was like, I, I mean, thousands and th- like hundreds of thousands of dollars, I believe, to make. Like not a cheap record at all. You know, I was on Geffen. And, uh, you know, like the budget behind it and everything. And like, like there's a few instances where I still can hear it, like, like on accident prone, like those choruses, like that wall of sound with those guitars, like things like that. I'm like, you know, like that's, that's where you really hear we're like, oh yeah, that's probably where it went, you know, in the budget. But it's just funny to think about now, but like there was a time where people were pissed at that, you know, like, oh, that, that sound is polished, which I mean, really go listen to that record. It's not, it's polished is not a word I would use for, uh, for dear you. You know, and it's like, oh, it sounds like this and it's not that. And it's like, but but if you go listen back now and all those things are silly and we all know that now that that's all, 
you know, a band signing to a major label and being mad at them and not listening to them or turning your back on them, like where they when they play new songs, you know, when you go to see them is foolish. And uh, you, know, you can look back and see that. But at the time, it was detrimental to them. You know, that that's kind of the flip side of that, where you could sign to a major and maybe sell, you know, an ungodly amount of your record. And uh, that's awesome. And, you know, you some people may be pissed at you for uh, doing it, but you're probably going to get, you know, triple, you know, maybe five times the amount of fans that you're, you know, for like, you know, the handful that you're going to lose, you're going to gain thousands and thousands. But the flip side of that is like with Jawbreaker where you put out Dear You and uh, the old fans are pissed at you and, uh, you know, are not happy with you and you're not really gaining those new fans that you thought you would. You know, no one knew is really coming out and they, they don't understand what you're doing and, you know, whether it be that or, you know, major labels, once again, they may put more money behind, you know, one band and they do another. And, uh, you know, maybe you're not maybe you're not getting the the right uh, support or the right promotion for whatever reason it is. I mean, there there's always more than one reason. I, I don't think there's ever just one. You know, I don't think there's one reason why something is very popular. And I don't think there's one reason why something isn't very popular. You know, it's kind of a combination of things. But, uh, you know, that the, whatever the combination was for Dear You, I mean, was not was not good for them. Obviously, they uh, ended up breaking up after that. And I mean, they, they had tension beforehand. But uh, still, you know, I mean, if there was I, I, I'm sure they would even tell you that, that if things had went differently and maybe the major label thing was more positive, maybe they had sold more records, maybe, you know, maybe all of that, you know, maybe people may have still been pissed at them for assigning to a major, but had those new fans come, you know, maybe things would have been different. You know, I mean, maybe they wouldn't have walked away from that had they like you look at them now and they're playing like festivals and theaters and stuff. And, uh, you know, you, you can't help but think that maybe if that success came, you know, 25 years earlier, they may have just kept going. You know, I mean, maybe maybe they wouldn't have taken that, you know, whatever 16, 17 year hiatus that uh, that they have. And actually, I think more than that, I think that was like closer. That was closer to like, I think, a 20 year hiatus that they took, you know, and uh, I don't I don't know. It's interesting to think about. I mean, um, they have talked about writing a new record since reuniting. And I mean, Jawbreaker is one of my favorite bands. I would obviously go listen to it, but I don't know. I don't I'm not someone as much as I love them. I'm I'm someone who also thinks, look, at you haven't put out a record in 25 years. If you really feel strongly about it, you really think it's something that you are, you know, that you're going to put the name on and it's worth putting, you know, in the band's legacy. Totally like go for it. But I I am cautious with things like that where like I, I don't think that every band has to reunite and put out a record like I'm cool with some bands just getting back together and playing the classics because, you know, I mean. There are some great reunion records, but there's also some stinkers out there. So, you know, and, and sometimes you don't really know until it comes out. But, uh, you know, my, my whole thing is I think sometimes people put half-hearted reunion records out. Like, they'll just put whatever they release out. It's like we're going to get in a, in a studio and record something, and whatever that is is our new music. And it's like that's not always a good idea. So, you know, as long as – and they are taking their time on it. So it's like, look, at, I mean, they take their time on some new Jawbreaker, you know, even though it's been 25 years. I mean, Blake has written – I mean, look at Jets to Brazil. He wrote some amazing songs post-Jawbreaker. You know, they're all still capable of uh, writing some great music. But, uh, yeah, it's just interesting when you think, you know, in that perspective. You're like, well, Dear You was 25 years ago. It's like, what would the follow-up be like? You know, that's quite a bit. You know, there's 
There's even, you know, there's a lot of bands who've been putting stuff out, even like this year. I feel like I've interviewed a lot of people who are like, this is our first album in like a decade. And it's like, even decades a long time, but 25 years is a very long time in between records, you know. So I don't know. I'd be cautiously optimistic about a new new Jawbreaker. I mean, they have worked on things, so it's not like a, hmm, maybe one day they will. I mean, they have talked about working on new music and that they have worked on new music. So, you know, maybe someday they'll see the light of day. I don't, I don't know. You know, hopefully it has some of the magic of uh, Dear You, but that that one that one's so unfortunate to to me because I you know you look at it now twenty five years later and people do people love that record. Um, it's a fan favorite. Basically, I would say if Twenty Four Hour Revenge Therapy isn't your favorite Jawbreaker record, Dear You probably is, and uh, I'm in that camp. But uh, you know, once again, twenty five years ago that was released, totally different, totally totally different. It was not you know really never received radio airplay. They made a music video for Fireman. I don't really think that got much play, you know. And and once again, the people the people who were fans beforehand, anyone who was really coming out was just pissed at them after they didn't really get the record. I mean, I've, I've heard tons of people who have said that who heard the record when it came out, didn't like it, and you know, didn't turn around and you know on it until like a decade later, you know. So that's that's definitely a uh, you know it it's it's normal when it comes to Jawbreaker, but it's unfortunate, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's a career, it, it, it helped end a career, but I think it also helped revive them, you know, for the, for the same things that broke them up, I think years later, you know, those same songs were what, what made people like myself and a lot of others, you know, look, look back on their catalog and go like, holy shit, like this band was really good. Like, like people didn't like this. Like I still can't believe that. Like listening to Dear You, like I I knew the the animosity and and what it did to the band prior to hearing it. Like I knew it. I knew that record like really hurt their career. And then I listened to it. I'm like like how? Like I just don't get it. I'm like this is their best stuff. Like how how did this hurt them? Like it makes zero sense, you know. But uh, it's just one of those things you look back. And, uh, you know, and another funny one, you know, looking back, Cheshire Cat, Blink-182, when they were uh, still Blink, you know, that came out in 1995. And uh, earlier this year, talking to uh, Steve Kravak, who engineered that one. But it's like, that's another one where it's funny. Like, when you look when that came out, you know, it's kind of the opposite of that, where it's like, or really not the opposite, because Dear You never really got big. But it's kind of the opposite of, like, and Out Come the Wolves or something, where that was just huge right away and just fucking massive. And, you know, Cheshire Cat's never, you know, has never been Blink-22's really biggest record. But if you go back and you listen to that, part of the charm is that I don't think you would ever think that that was a band who was going to be huge. Like, you know, if you go, and I and I really like that record. I really like Cheshire Cat. But, like, literally there's, there's like, there's literally and just about done. Mark, Mark is sitting there reciting lines from the movie Airplane. And, you know, they have a song called Benoit Balls. Like, there's just, you know, you look at it and you go, like, this isn't really the recipe for, like, a mainstream band. Like, you would, you would never think that. Ju- and really, just four years later, that's another amazing thing. If you look at Enema of the State in 1999, that's only four years removed from Cheshire Cat. You know, like, like that band who was massive and sold millions of records and, you know, was, like, in Teen Beat or Tiger Beat and, like, TRL and all that, like, just four years prior was like, I mean, really raw. Like, you want to talk about, like, raw sounding, you know, and that was far from being on a major label either, you know. But, I mean, also talk about, like, not knowing, you know, what the trends in music could be. It's like, you know, that that would not be the band that I think you would assume 
would end up closing, you know, the decade being one of the biggest punk bands, you know, of of the decade easily and uh, culturally leaving such a big mark, you know, because, I mean, I mean, Dude Ranch ended up selling a lot. And, you know, I mean, Cheshire Cat had some minor hits, you know, you had Carousel and M&Ms. I mean, neither neither was very big. I think they got some play maybe on like K-Rock in Southern California. Like, so, I mean, regionally, they got a little attention with those, but, you know, n- didn't really get the attention for like another four years. But even in that, you think about that's really not that long. Like the difference is so night and day. Like you would almost think that those are two different bands. You could, you could almost play those for somebody and go, no, those are, those are two different bands. And they would probably believe it. You know, like it's just so different in that way. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing what a like short amount of time can do in that. But, you know, like like the charm of that record, like you look back 25 years on that and it's one of those albums where you go, you know, it, it's not their breakthrough record. It's not even really the fan favorite. A lot of people don't like that record. But the reason I like it and I look back on it so fondly is I go 25 years ago, you can look and it's like it's not the band that is big. It's not the household name band. You know, it, it, it's not. It, it's not that band selling millions of records or playing arenas like at all. Like it, it's the band who's playing Soma in San Diego and, uh, you know, are, are trying to record a record, you know, are trying to are to record like 20 songs in two days, like that kind of band. And, and I love that, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a document on that, you know, and, uh, you know, also a document on that time too. I mean, ska being a huge one in 95, you know, one of the biggest being tragic kingdom, and uh, that that one's still it, it's so funny to look back on that now. And I mean, Scott's kind of making a little bit of a comeback now, not not mainstream wise, I would say. But you look back on something like that, and you look at like Tragic Kingdom, and it's like, and even No Doubt, like No Doubt, such a mainstream band. You forget it's like it's just a ska band. Like they were they were just a ska band. Like they started, they were playing with like real big fish and shit. Like you know, like just just a ska punk band. And you look at a record like that that you know went on and sold i mean who know i don't even know how many copies but i can basically say i would i would say of every record that i've talked about on uh, this episode i mean that has to be like the biggest selling one and uh you know once again like you still to this day hear it all on on uh, top 40 radio even to the you know like like uh, no doubt but i mean still if you listen to a song like spider webs like wow like you know that's it's amazing. It's that moment in time where you're like it, 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 that never would have been played on, you know, mainstream radio 10 years prior. And then 10 years later, it wouldn't be played, you know, on mainstream radio. It's really this sliver in time that, uh, you know, I really think solidifies why the nineties were such a special, you know, kind of era for music. I mean, for myself and for a lot of others, because you look at it and you're like, what was, what was considered popular? Like if you, if you look present day at, at what is, is mainstream considered popular, like, I, I feel like a lot of it fits together more and fits a certain mold. Whereas if you look at what was popular, like say in 1995, it's just all over the goddamn place. You know, I mean, it, it just, it, it really is. I mean, you have same with like, I mean, going off ska, even going further than that, you know, like big band swing and like shit like that, where you're like, who would think that that was going to be big in that era? Like, you know what I mean? Like 50, 60 years after the fact, and then it becomes big again. And, uh, you know, I mean, but that that could coexist with with ska and with, you know, punk and, uh, you know, everything else going on too outside of that. You know, I'm also, you know, being kind of uh, narrow here and just talking about a couple specific genres. But I mean, even outside of that, you look at just everything, everything that kind of coexisted 
with uh, with one another on there, you know, and what what was popular and, uh, you know, what was played together, you know, or even just look at a good example of that. I always think of if you ever want to look at like what was big in a certain year, go look at go look at the lineup for radio festivals, because they're always like I've like every radio festival I've ever been to has some nutty ass lineup. But it's always great because once again, it's a it's a document in time of of like whatever was really big at that time, but the bands never fit. It's never it's never a lineup that you would see, you know, like as a tour or anything like that. It's these weird, you know, it's a weird thing that you see like one time. But uh, you know, if you go look back at like a radio festival and say nineteen ninety five, it's like you're gonna see this crazy, you know, I'm I'm sure Rancid played some of those. And it's like like you could probably see like fucking like rancid play with like TLC or something like that. You know, like like even even if not like that specific example, like, you know, you would find something like that. And uh, you know, I, I really do like radio festivals are always like I, I still think of some like uh up in Buffalo I saw the Kissmas bash um that like a top forty station did in Buffalo like back in like oh three and oh four were like two years that I went and like if you go look at those lineups they're so weird. Like they're the oddest thing, but they're what was big at the time. Like you, you had artists playing with each other who would never, you know, you would never see them in another lineup again. You'll never see it again. You never saw it before. You'll never see it again. But like that, that like one year, just when when they kind of put together whatever's popular at that time, it's just always funny. But uh, some of the most eclectic ones, though, still though have to be like in like 1995 because you know at that point i mean you have what's mainstream you know your top 40 music your your dance music just you know i mean really just pop music you know like this is a lot of these records are popular you know green day green day has a record that's popular but i wouldn't say they're pop music per se but uh you know the stuff that was made just straight up pop to be a hit coexisted uh, you know, coincided with, you know, the punk bands and the alternative bands and the ska bands that were getting big who, you know, weren't made to be hit machines, but just coincidentally or for whatever reason just stuck and were successful and, uh, you know, them them just coexisting with each other. And uh, it was really an interesting thing and uh, very cool, which I think you look back on now, like like because once again, I think, uh, you know, major labels and it's not like I'm I'm super pro major label. But I'm just kind of I think I think the more that I talk to people who have been on them and the more you look back, you know, throughout time, I just become neutral on them where I go just because you're a major label doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it's that it's good or bad. It just it goes case by case. Same with indie labels. I mean, there are some terrible fucking indie labels out there who have who have screwed over bands way more than major labels have, you know, and vice, and vice versa. It just depends who you talk to. There's bands out there who have been screwed over by labels that are ran out of like a dude's like basement, you know. And then there's people who have been screwed over from labels that are ran in downtown Los Angeles, you know, that have, you know, from a 30-story building. Like it just, you know, it's all it all just goes case by case. But um you know, I I think you do look back though and even though, you know, the the major label machine did hurt bands, you know, once again, like, uh, you know, like Jawbreaker or another great one, Hum, who did release You'd Prefer an Astronaut in 1995, which, you know, that that was on a major label. And, you know, Stars was a minor hit, but, uh, you know, not a huge band. And, you know, like like once again, didn't didn't really the label didn't really do for them what it did for, uh, you know, other other artists and stuff, you know, that that just also happens. 
But the fact that major labels would take a chance on those bands and release that stuff is what uh, is what I always think. You look back now and it's like, you know, even the ones that didn't stick, I still think it's cool that they put so much money behind. You know what I mean? Like the fact that there was a time that a band like Jawbreaker, like their advance, like they got like a million dollars to sign with Geffen. Like think about that though. Think about present day. Like like just think about that for a second. They gave Jawbreaker a million dollars to be on their label. Like that's insane. Like you know what I mean? Like that's truly insane if you start to think about it. And that's pretty damn cool to be honest. Like same with a band like Hum or you know, they didn't sign to it but the there's Texas is the reason I mean, there's huge stories about that. They were they were offered like a $2 million major label deal. I forget which label it was, but back in the 90s, they were being offered like $2 million and courted by all these major labels. Like, And that's another band. Like we're talking about like uh, Jawbreaker. Go listen to Texas is a Reason and be like that band. You know what I mean? And not, not that they don't deserve it. They 100% do. I love those bands. But what I'm saying, like you know what I'm saying. It's like you listen to that and you don't go – that's ma- that's a major label artist you know what i mean like like you don't you don't think of that now but back then it was pretty damn cool that they did that now don't get me wrong i they were also doing it because they were trying to make money like it is a business once again so them signing you because you kind of sound like nirvana you know i mean they were also doing it in hopes that you were going to make them a bunch of money like don't get me wrong they they give texas as a reason 2 million dollars cuz they hope they can make 10 million dollars off of them but still the fact that they would put money behind that and stuff still you have to believe in it to some degree and uh you know as once again i think that moment in time just very very cool you know 25 years ago cuz a lot of things that were released then just you know would would definitely not be now like tragic kingdom is not something you would hear on a major label and the best example of that is i mean the interrupters who uh are the biggest name in ska right now and a great great band but i mean you know even as big as they are they're on epitaph records or, you know, actually, I don't even think they're on Epitaph. They're on Hellcat, Tim Armstrong's label, which is a, you know, it's a part of, it's a part of Epitaph. So, I mean, you know, basically Epitaph. But, you know, they're like the biggest band in ska, but they're not on a major label. And honestly, I don't know that they ever will be, you know, like, and, and that's, but that's the thing, like that, that really goes to show you. Same with like pop punk bands. It's like the biggest pop punk band now is whatever band it would be, you know, I mean, take out like Green Days and Blink-22s. Like if we're we're talking more bands who have been, you know, who have, say, united or not united, but, uh, you know, have formed in the last, say, 15 years. Like let's say from 2005 on, if your band, any band that, that has existed in pop punk who's, who's, you know, who started after 2005, the biggest bands of that, of, of those – are not on major labels. They and they never will be. They they were never offered. They was never there was never a time they were gonna. Because you also hear a lot of bands who never even got on major labels who are courted a lot. You know, No Effects is another one. You know, going back to them, it's like they were courted for major labels for a very long time, and uh, you know never never did it. But it's like still major labels are courting that. Whereas now the major labels aren't going to court. You know what I mean? Like in two thousand twenty, like. There's there's not a you know there's not a major label who's trying to sign no doubt or no effects you know to to a deal because they think they're going to make them tons and tons of money you know it, it just wouldn't happen you know there's there's those records you know I mean same with Smashing Pumpkins you look at Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness that that is that turned twenty five this year great great record 
And, you know, it's this double disc. And I mean, you know, there's hits on it. But still, like, those were hits. You know what I mean? Like, that's amazing that that was, like, a mainstream thing that, uh, you know, that, like, people could agree on and actually liked. You know what I mean? It's it's not this. What, I, what I'm getting at is it's not that, like, I know it's a great record. But it's, like, I to me, I look at it and go, you would almost think it's a record just, like, you know, kind of how, like, Let It Be or Tim or, you know, any of your favorite replacements records are where, there's there's music aficionados or people who are really fans of a certain kind of music who know it's a great record, but the mainstream doesn't. You know what I mean? Like like I know the replacements are great. I know Paul Westerberg, you know, is is like one of the greatest songs. He is the greatest songwriter in my opinion. But to uh, to not have such a, a strong opinion, one of I'll, I'll go I will I'll tone it back and say one of the greatest. But you know, even with that said. He's not he's not mainstream enough, you know. I mean, he he's had he's had brushes with success, and you know he's had uh, things that are maybe more mainstream than others. But it's like you know a, a guy like that. It, it you know there, there's a lot of stuff that he's written where I listen to like anything off like Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. I go like, this is genius. But I realize it's never going to be you know that wasn't going to be the uh, the era of the replacements that was going to get signed to a major label you know that's not the band that Sire wanted you know they wanted them maybe closer to like what they sounded like during Let It Be but uh, you know there are a lot of raw punk bands who you know in 1995 major labels were like no like we want that like we will sign that and uh, you know once again some of it stuck some of it didn't but the fact that he was that it was even given that chance to give me that platform you know. Or that those bands would also play late night, you know, that you'd see a lot of them. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, ni- 1995, just a, a big a big year for a lot of uh, bands starting. You know, a lot of bands had their, like, sophomore and debuts. Um, you also had, I mean, the, the end of it, the Ramones had Adios Amigos. Their very last record came out 25 years ago. And uh, a, a pretty good record, I got to say. I mean, CJ, if you, if you don't listen to a lot of later era Ramones, I think CJ really you know put like a breath of fresh air in that band on some of the last few records that he was on and uh, on Adios Amigos I mean he sings like three or four songs on it and uh, so I mean a good chunk of the record is sung by CJ but really really good like that record is a is a really solid one you know I mean look at it's it's not it's never going to be something they're they're one of the first punk bands of all time it's like when you those first couple records just basically helped create a genre and like influenced everybody in it. Like if you're in a punk band and you're not influenced by the Ramones, like get the fuck out of here. Like I I don't know who you are. Like I don't think it's possible. I true like you don't have to like I get it. Like you may be like maybe maybe you're a punk band, but like maybe you're not influenced by the Misfits. And it's like I mean okay. Like I mean tons are, but all right, fine. Like you're not a fan of the Misfits. All right, I I, I guess I can understand it. You know, there, there's different artists is what I'm getting at. It's like, okay, like maybe you're in a punk band, but you're not influenced by Crass or you don't like Bad Religion or this or that. There's some bands where it's like, oh, okay, whatever. The Ramones are one, though, where I go, I don't care what kind of punk you're playing. You could be playing the crustiest of punk. You could be playing the polished of polished pop punk. And if the Ramones are not one of your influences, I just don't quite understand you. And uh, I can't imagine I'm going to like what what uh, what you're releasing. But anyway, when you put something out that important early on in your career, like with the Ramones, you know, your your later stuff's going to get overshadowed. But Audios Amigos, 
still still one of their best later era records. And uh, you know, once again, CJ Ramone had some damn fine songs on there that uh, you know, a lot of them that Dee Dee Ramone actually wrote and uh he did better than Dee Dee did. The Crusher being one of them, uh, one of the best songs on the record in my opinion. And uh CJ CJ does that one better than Dee Dee does. You can hear both versions and I, I think anyone will tell you even Dee Dee Puris, who uh, maybe weren't as big of a fan of CJ, I, I think they'd have to tell you that CJ just absolutely makes that song. I mean, really breathes some light into it that uh, you know, you really you you don't hear in the DD in the DD version, you know, which which I can't say enough good things uh about CJ in that way. You know, it also taking on a band that that you are. You you go in the Ramones who we're already legendary. You're joining a legendary band. It's not like CJ joined and then they got big. Like he was joining a band who was already, you know, the legend status, you know, had already at that point been around like 13 years or something. You know, they, they were the veteran band at that point. And, uh, you know, to come in and take, take over shoes as big as DD's too. And to do a job like that, you know, is absolutely amazing and uh, definitely deserves some credit. He, he's a, he is a, a great guy, and uh, still my favorite interview I've ever done was uh, having him on the show early, early on. And, uh, yeah, I love that one. Another great one, I mean, Alien Lanes, Guided by Voices. That's another one that's just pure 90s and uh, not on a major label, though they ended up being on a major label like a record or two later. And uh, But still, like, you just listen to that and you're like, that's that's like an indie favorite though you know and it's still kind of a cult classic not that you really hear guided by voices like like you're probably not going to hear game of pricks on the radio but it's like still like songs like that and a salty salute like there's just there's there's songs on that record that are really just like if we're talking indie rock i mean they're, they're just the gold standard you know i mean same with here's where the strings come in my all-time favorite super chunk record um, just such a, such a good record. That one came out in 95. And again, just, you listen to that and you go like, to me, that's just good indie rock. Like, I mean, solid, like, and, and people love the Pixies and pavement and, you know, just, just different bands like that, that they would, that they would probably reference. Like if we're talking like, you know, nineties alt rock or whatever, but really in my opinion, and 1995 being such a big year of that, I mean, the Guided by Voices with Alien Lanes, the Super Chunks with Here's Where the Strings Come In, and uh, Arches of Loaf with Vivi, their second record, you know, I mean, right after Icky Metal, you come off something as strong as Icky Metal, and uh, Vivi's another great one with some classic, classic Arches of Loaf songs on there, but it's like, that's that to me is more the gold standard of indie rock, like, if we're really talking about that of the 90s, like, that's where it's at. It's not with the Pixies. It's it's not with Pavement. You know, it's with Super Chunk. It's with Archers of Loaf. It's with Guided by Voices. You know, and those bands get credit, but not not to the point that they should. You know, all all those bands mentioned should be like headlining. You know, the Coachellas of the world and things like that. You know, those 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 bands should get more of get more of. Uh, the attention than they do. You know, I, I think they're appreciated in like, you know, record store circles and like college rock or, you know, college radio kind of circles and things like that. You know, that's kind of where they maybe get their accolades and, and their nods, but you know, mainstream radio and just mainstream in general, you know, like, like if you're going, if you're going to be like, yeah, like, you know, that like mains, like rock radio who, you know, plays a lot of that and even, even like smashing pumpkins, which I love or no doubt, you know, some of those other, even though it's not indie rock, but like the alternative of the time 
it's like they should throw on songs from VV or uh, Alien Lanes, you know, on, on some of those on some of those stations, you know. And I and I get it. I mean, Alien Lanes a little more rough around the edges at parts, but you know, at the same time, I mean, it, it influenced so many artists that you know you that they would play on the radio, you know, or that you would hear on that rock station. And it's like, why not play the thing that inspired them? You know, I mean, the Strokes being one of that. I mean, look at how massive the Strokes were. And, uh, you know, I mean, Is This It? Their debut came out in 2001, you know, so that's uh, that's six years later after Alien Lanes. And all of them, I think, will tell you that that was a huge record for them. I know one of them wrote wrote a article, uh, you know, a few years ago for, like, Spin Magazine about, you know, what uh, the impact that Alien Lanes had on, had on them, like – like honestly, like you know, you just look at that, and it's like those those are the bands that I think should get more attention, um, you know, kind of legacy bands than uh, than some of the other ones. And and no disrespect, like the Pixies and Pavement, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I keep picking on those two, and I think it's because just once again, that like like Pavement to me, like I heard Archers of Loaf before I ever heard Pavement, but I, I've always heard people talk about how great Pavement is, and then I listened to him, and I just went. I, I think people the people who really like pavement have just never heard Archers of Loaf. I'm like, this just sounds like a not as good version of Archers of Loaf. Like it's not terrible. Like I mean, I, I don't hate it. Like I wouldn't be pissed if I heard that on a radio station. I wouldn't change the uh, I wouldn't change the station. But uh, you know, just in terms of uh, accolades and like you know all the attention it gets, I go like, man, why aren't people giving this to like Archers of Loaf? Like how is Archers of Loaf this obscure band? when you have something like this that, you know, is just as comparable and, uh, you know, but it's the same thing. You just never know it's going to be big. I've always said like with Dookie, you know, and Dookie deserves to be the massive record it does, but why was Dookie so big and why wasn't, you know, half of the rest of the Lookout Records roster just to, you know, like Mr. Tear Experience and the Queers and Screeching Weasel, like all those bands who are contemporaries of Green Day, like, they were putting out records just as good as Dookie, like, but they just weren't hitting the same way. They weren't getting, you know, they weren't getting as big. The Muffs too, you know, they put out Blonder and Blonder in uh, 1995, and I mean, I think it sold some records, but it's like the Muffs were never as big as they should have been. And like, that's one of those records where I, I listen to that and I go, it's another one where production wise, it's not overdone, it's not over polished, but it sounds good. It's a good sounding record. But it's still, you know, like like Kim Shattuck's, I mean, her iconic, you know, just that that roar that she does, you know, like it's still intact there. It's it sounds great. And that one was on a major label, too. You know, that was one where they took a chance on something where, uh, you know, really should have been bigger than it than it was. And I don't get how it wasn't. You know, I don't get why the muffs weren't as big as, uh, you know, like Green Day. I mean, I think they easily deserve to be, you know, for sure. But, uh, yeah, you know, things like that. That's another one. Like, the Muffs to think now. It's like, you know, like the, when the Muffs got back together in the 2000s, it's like, you know, major labels weren't knocking on their door or knocking their door down, you know, to, like, get them to do, like, the reunion album. But in that time, you know, there was that era where, you know, there was a place for them. You know, there was a place for them on major labels. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's awesome. But, uh, yeah, you know, it was really a time and place. Same with uh, all, you know, I'll put Pummel out. And, you know, as, as you probably saw on Filmage, if you've ever watched that, and if you haven't, one of the best music documentaries out there, it, you know, well worth checking out. I haven't, I haven't seen it actually in a few years. It's probably time. I watch it every couple years. It's probably time for, a, uh, for another Filmage viewing. But, uh, you know, if you watch that, like with all the frustrations of them throughout the 90s, really 
trying to be a commercially viable band and, you know, being a getting getting on the radio and whatnot and, uh, you know, kind of playing the major label game and it just never happening. But, you know, once again, still cool that that could be released on a major label. And, you know, they end up playing, I believe it was Conan O'Brien that they uh, performed on back in 95. And uh, once again, just cool, cool little things like that where you're like, you know, those aren't bands who were regulars on late night TV. And it's not like you you hear all on like commercial radio. But the fact that they were on major labels for that second, you know, it gave them those opportunities where there are these cool little things that they did where you're like, oh, that's really neat that that, you know, band that means so much to you was on there. You know, even though they may not be the band that you think of when you think of late night TV or those kinds of things, they did get to do it. You know, they they did get their turn with it, you know, which is which is very cool to look at. And, uh, you know, so so I, that, that's really why I want to talk about that for this episode. You know, 1995, 25 years ago, um, just a special you know, the 90s in general, but really 1995 kind of being that that time where you had a couple bands that major labels took chances on, you know, with Nirvana, with Green Day, um, that, ended up, that ended up paying off. That ended up selling a bunch of records. And by 1995, I'd really say that's where you really started to see it. Really more for like punk rock. You know, grunge, grunge had its thing in 91, but once 94 hit and really was able to flourish like it did because of grunge a few years earlier, after that was the domino effect for punk rock. You know, in 1995 was just, I mean, such a great year for that. I mean, once again, I mean, this is, this isn't even, this is like half a list, but just like, like some of the records I've talked about on this episode and, uh, you know, just kind of jump down and really like, like sparkle and fade from Everclear. Here's where the strings come in from Super Chunk. Adios Amigos from the Ramones. Blink-182 put out Cheshire Cat. Guided by Voices put out Alien Lanes. Green Day put out Insomniac. Rancid put out and Out Come the Wolves. Jawbreaker put out Dear You. The Muffs put out Blonder and Blonder. No Doubt put out Tragic Kingdom. You had Face, or not Face to Face, No Use for a Name. Putting out Leche Con Carne. Legwang and put out Haas. Pennywise put out About Time. Arches of Loaf put out VV. Um, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. You had Lifetime, who I mean, I mean, get into, but I mean, Lifetime on Jade Tree with Hello Bastards. You know, I mean, such a, such a solid, uh, you know, debut record right there. And, uh, you know, all with Pummel and Less Than Jake with Pezcor. I mean, just some solid ska that year. Solid, solid ska, solid punk. Solid pop punk, pop rock, you know. I mean, even though I don't think it was being called college rock at that time, there's a lot of good, like, kind of, I mean, basically at that point, indie rock. But, you know, I, I would say bands like Super Chunk and Arches of the Loaf kind of, uh, you know, carrying the torch of what the art of, like, what the REMs and the replacements of the 80s were doing and, uh, you know, doing in the 90s. But, yeah, I mean, 1995, an amazing time for music, an amazing year for music, right in the middle there. And, uh, you know, kind of, kind of that in between there punk was big, but it wasn't the polished punk of like enema of the state. You know, it, it was still that kind of rough around the edges, um, you know, of, of like dookie, you know, really. And, uh, just a, a really good time for music. I would say a really solid time. You know, it's, it, there's a reason why I'm attracted to that era and why, you know, so many of my favorite bands come from that. And I just think it's that, you know, and, and it really does. I mean, you, you have bands to thank for it. You have success to thank for it prior to that, you know, because that's why so many labels are taking chances. 
But, uh, you know, things were good for those bands. I think bands could make a few dollars, you know. And, and once again, it's not even it's not even the fact of they could be millionaires, but just the fact that even the ones who weren't massive could do it as their day job, you know. And I think it really helped the quality of the music. It allowed them to pay attention to that, to really focus on it 100% and make the band their full-time commitment. And yeah, you know, not not all of them got rich, but you know, even even if they didn't have to work for three or four years while they toured the world and released a couple records, you know, an amazing amazing thing, you know, which I'm I'm very thankful for as a, a fan, you know. And uh, also, I mean, once again, you know, shout Matt Pinfield in 120 minutes. I mean, I know 120 minutes was around pre uh, Pinfield, but I mean, he he's kind of the quintessential host, and that's the greatest era of uh, of that show. And, uh, you know, just what he brought to the show, what he brought to the table and, you know, really bringing those those bands to light in a more mainstream audience and getting out there to people who otherwise wouldn't, you know, hear those bands, you know, just such a such a cool thing that, uh, you know, I mean, it kind of goes with the with the compilation, which I love talking about on here, where like things things change. Sometimes they expand, you know, the, the compilation may not be the big thing anymore. But, you know, now now it's a new, you know, a new way to promote your music and stuff. It just always changes. It never stays the same. You know, whatever whatever way you have now, I was talking about this uh, a few weeks ago with Bill McShane when he was on the show, you know, how like, you know, artists now, I mean, there's artists who have gotten big from TikTok, like TikTok they've used to get popular. And the thing with that is that's great. But like what you also have to realize is that that's the kind of thing it's going to last for a while, but it's not going to last forever. You know, it's the same thing with compilations or even signing to a major label. There was a time where getting big meant signing to a major label. That's how you got big. It doesn't mean that anymore. You know, right now, maybe, maybe, you know, certain people are getting big off TikTok and maybe that is a way to, uh, you know, get big, you know, get your music out there. But in 10 years, it won't be, you know, that that stuff changes just so constantly. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of nice, though, because I think that sliver in time in the 90s, there were more resources than you really, you know, the Internet's a great equalizer, but there was a lot of money behind a lot of bands who uh, otherwise probably didn't have it before or after, you know. So, uh, you know, just just very cool. I want to talk about that. But that is going to be the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed. And uh, actually, I, I made this playlist last week kind of for a teaser for this podcast. But if you've not heard it yet, I made a three-hour playlist of all songs from 1995, all from uh, releases from that year. So uh, go check that out on our Spotify page. I mean, every 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 band that I talked about on here, all those records, um, there's stuff from all of them, plus a bunch of other bands that I even get to talk about. Because uh, I was just looking at the time. We're already at an uh, hour and 15 here. And, uh, you know, don't want to keep you keep you much longer. But, uh, you know, I, I go on about this forever. But, uh, yeah, go check out that playlist. All this stuff from 1995. Really listen to it and see why I'm saying what a special year that was. And uh, check out all the other playlists on there. We put up uh, a playlist of everything I play on the radio show every week which uh, we're now doing two hours a week, which I'm very stoked about. And uh, shout out to WRFA for letting me do that. But uh, you can go check out those playlists on Spotify. Give us a follow. We're at Power Chord Hour on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on YouTube. Shout out to you if you're listening to this on YouTube right now. And uh, hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. Um, we got some uh, stickers and guitar picks 
that uh, I'm giving out absolutely free. Just hit me up. Let me know what you want. Some, I'll mail you some. And we do have Power Cord Hour t-shirts. Those ones are free, but if you want one of those, here is the catch. Go rate and review the show on iTunes. Send us a screenshot, and we'll send you one. Not much of a catch, but uh, you got to do a little more for it than you do for the free stickers. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, if you like a free shirt, rate and review us. If uh, you still want free shit but you're too lazy to go write a review, just hit me up, powercordhourgmail.com. I'll still send you some stickers and guitar picks. I, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for listening to the show. If you've listened uh, to the end of this, you know, thank you very much for checking it all out. And uh, I just very much appreciate it. We'll be back next week, I believe, with a guest. But, uh, you know, I like doing these solo every now and then. You know, I like to have guests, but... I also like to uh, come on here and just kind of bullshit about music for a while. And uh, that's exactly what we did. And I hope you enjoyed this one. So until next episode for the Power Chord Hour, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thanks for listening.